True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to the 10th episode of Season 4 and the 50th episode of the True Crime Fix podcast. I've finally made it, the first significant episode milestone. I thank everybody who has supported me since the 1st of February 2019, when I released my first episode, and 25 people heard my opening episode on the first day. 50 episodes later, and just under 400,000 total listens, I'm incredibly proud of what I've achieved so far, and I'm not stopping yet. So if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory, and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. Also, if you could spread the word far and wide, I would really appreciate it. Today is part two of the case dedicated to all those that lost their lives on the 15th of March 2019 in the city of Christchurch in New Zealand. If you've not heard part one yet, then please go back and listen to episode 49 first or you'll be incredibly confused. For those who have heard the first part, a brief recap. On Thursday the 14th of March 2019, a racist manifesto appeared on the website 8chan with a link to a Facebook page of Brenton Tarrant. The following day, the same manifesto was emailed to significant figures within the New Zealand government. I told the story of the Al Noor Mosque shooting. I then eulogised all of those who had lost their lives in that attack. So without further ado, this is your true crime fix. I am your host Steve, and this is the second episode dedicated to the memory of all of those that lost their lives on the 15th of March 2019. It was 1.50pm and Christchurch Hospital's emergency department was having a relatively quiet day. All of a sudden, two men arrived at the hospital on foot with injuries from smashing a window at the mosque. The men told the duty nurses to expect many more patients, and in the next hour, 48 trauma patients arrived at the department. Within a couple of minutes, the first paramedics had arrived at the Al Noor Mosque under armed police escort. The scene that greeted Paul Bennett and his colleagues was like nothing they had ever seen before and Paul was a veteran of the Canterbury earthquakes. Paul and his fellow crew members 
tried to get into the mosque, but the lifeless bodies were piled up in the entrance. In order to get any of the survivors out, they had to lift the injured over the other bodies and carry them out on stretchers. The paramedics noted that there was so much blood that it formed a river that flowed down the terracotta tiles at the mosque entrance. Brenton Tarrant had fled the Al Noor mosque prior to the paramedics and the law enforcement officers arriving, and he now had a second target in sight. As he drove away from the Al Noor mosque, Tarrant continued to shoot at anyone who he considered that was a target of his hate. He saw two men who appeared to be of African descent on the pavement and discharged a shotgun at them, fortunately missing. He had turned out of the mosque onto Dean's Avenue before taking Harper Avenue and Beeley Avenue before his Facebook Live finally ceased. His second target? The Linwood Islamic Centre on Linwood Avenue. On the drive though, Tarrant still had a distinct lack of care for human life, like a teenager being let loose on Call of Duty for the first time. At a junction, he came alongside another vehicle, being driven by a Fijian man. He pointed his shotgun at him. Fortunately though, despite repeated attempts to discharge his shotgun, it failed to fire. The Linwood Islamic Centre was located at 223A Linwood Avenue and it was opened in 2018 on the site of the former Christchurch Baha'i Centre and before that it was a Sunday school and it had cost just under 400000 New Zealand dollars to convert. When Tarrant got to Linwood, he parked his car up and equipped himself with yet another firearm and approached the mosque on foot down the long driveway. He saw three people in and around a car. Advancing towards them, he shot Gullah Hussain in the head, killing him instantly, before firing at and wounding Mohammed Raza, who had got out the other side of the vehicle. Seeing that there were still people sitting in their cars, they became his target. He shot Karam Bibi before advancing up the driveway where he saw the wounded Mohammed Raza attempting to find cover behind a fence. Mohammed attempted to retreat from Tarrant but despite his pleas to spare him his life, he murdered him in cold blood. A wounded Karam Bibi, whom Tarrant had shot earlier, tried to hide in front of her vehicle. Spotting that she was still alive, Tarrant walked calmly to within metres of her as she lay prone, with her head buried in her hands. He stood over her, and Tarrant executed her. He then advanced towards the mosque. This is where Tarrant made his first error though, in line with the strategy in his sadistic mind. He had approached the mosque from the wrong side. As one newspaper put it in the aftermath, a quirk of geography saved dozens of lives at the Lindwood Mosque. 
Mohammed Akil Yudin had just gone inside after his weekly parking duty when he saw a man approach on the opposite side to the main door of the mosque where about a hundred worshippers had just started their Friday prayer. He was only metres away but finding no door he shot outside and at the window. The brief warning was a lifesaver for some. I broke my prayer and saw from the window three dead bodies, Mr Yudin said. I said, get down, something is happening outside. People got on the floor. I called for all of the people to get inside the ladies section. It's a safe place where you can lock it from the inside. Then I saw him. He was about six to eight feet in front of me. By the time he was in the right place, we had hidden ourselves. There was a panic. It was a very terrible situation. Others, though, were not so fortunate. As Tarrant passed a window, he saw the silhouette of Muhammad Khan. He murdered him with a single shot to the head. Mr Yudin said to Stuff website, referring to Muhammad Khan's death. It was literally the first shot he fired from the window and he was dead. So when people saw that, we went into the ladies' prayer area and tried to close the doors. If he had come through the main doors straight away, everybody would have maybe died. With his weapon now empty, Tarrant run down the driveway back to his vehicle. As he reached the car, Abdul Aziz Wahabazada had courageously followed him down the driveway and challenged Tarrant. Tarrant's response was to retrieve another semi-automatic rifle from his vehicle and he fired at Abdul. Abdul dived and took cover behind some parked cars before Tarrant walked back up the driveway, this time to the main entrance of the mosque. There were several people standing just inside the entranceway as Tarrant entered, who had either not been aware of what was going on or had not been able to get inside the lock room in time. Tarrant killed Musa Patel. Walking further into the mosque, he shot and killed Linda Armstrong. People were still huddled in corners of the main prayer room or trying to escape as Tarrant fired his weapon continuously, spraying the area with bullets, killing Mohammed Mohammed Hosen. He continued to fire the semi-automatic rifle until it ran out of ammunition, at which point he dropped it and ran back to his vehicle. As Tarrant left this time, Mr Yuding called Triple One, New Zealand's emergency number, and asked the police to warn the Majid al-Nur Mosque. He then learnt that they'd already been hit. As Tarrant returned to his car for the second time, Mr Wahabazada chased him down the driveway for a second time, screaming at him to have mercy. Tarrant removed his bayonet from his vest and threatened Mr Wahabazada. Unperturbed, the brave man kept advancing on Tarrant. 
at which point Tarrant retreated to his car and started to drive away from the mosque. As he did, Mr Wahabazada threw one of Tarrant's discarded weapons at his Subaru Outback, shattering the left rear window. Tarrant escaped down Aldwins Road and onto the State Highway 76. He had a third target in mind, but more on that later. The whole attack had taken just three minutes. Before we continue, I would like to take this opportunity to pay tribute to the seven people who had lost their lives. Ghulam Hussain was 66 years old when he was killed. He had grown up in Karachi in Pakistan and was still residing there. He had worked for Pakistan Airlines until his retirement. He and his wife Karam were visiting their son Zishan, who had moved to Christchurch. Karam Bibi was 63 years old when she was killed. Their son Zishan Raza was 38 years old when he was killed. He was a mechanical engineer who had moved to New Zealand in 2018. He arrived in Auckland first before moving to Christchurch for work in December 2018. His parents had arrived in New Zealand on February the 16th to visit him. Mariam Gull told the BBC the trio were her entire family. How is it possible not even one of them survived? Her parents were supposed to return to her in Pakistan in April, she told the BBC. Nobody knew that they would never come back, she said. For this world, I feel as if my family has gone. But I know that when you have nobody, you have Allah with you. She said that she wanted to see the person responsible punished severely. Muhammad Imran Khan was 47 years old when he was killed. He was originally from the Indian city of Hyderabad and he made it his mission to bring the taste of his hometown to New Zealand, in particular his speciality, a biryani. That signature curry dish bought to the masses through his Edgware takeaway restaurant, Indian Grill, occasionally found its way to the stomach of friends at the Majid al-Nur on Dean's Avenue, where he was a devout worshipper living nearby. On this day, however, he changed his location to the Linwood Islamic Centre. He was a passionate cricket fan and would talk for hours about the sport to anybody who would listen. Havis Musa Vali Patel was 59 years old when he was killed. He had been an imam at the Lakuta Jain Majid in his native Fiji for 25 years and he had been in Australia visiting family before visiting friends in Christchurch. Musa was a highly respected member of the Fiji Muslim League and served selflessly as an imam, teacher, mentor and was much sought after as a powerful orator and speaker. Hafizud Khan, the president of the Fiji Muslim League,
told New Zealand reporters. Linda Armstrong was 64 years old when she was killed and originally from Auckland. Linda converted to Islam in 2011. Not out of devotion to a man, but because she was volunteering at a refugee resettlement centre in Mangaray near Auckland, where she made new friends and sponsored Syrian refugees. Mum was a rebel, said her daughter. She didn't really like wearing a hijab. Later, she just wore a hat instead. A friend named Tayab spoke to Radio New Zealand. He said they both spoke French and grew to know each other well throughout their decade-long friendship. She was a great, smiling, nice, lovely person. She loved all the people around the world. Linda had sponsored a Syrian refugee in Jordan and helped Tayab improve his English. He said he was at work in Ashburton when he first heard about the mosque shootings. He said he had cried a lot since learning his sister had died and was carrying sunglasses to hide his eyes when he couldn't stop the tears. Linda had always told him Friday was an important day to her, he said. We don't want her to die this way. She has been shot, but we are very happy. She always believed that she would die on a Friday. That was her wish. I am very happy that she got her wish. Muhammad Musi Muhammad Hosen was 54 years old when he was killed. He was originally from Mauritius and came to New Zealand in 2016 and worked as an engineer. His niece, who lives in London, said her uncle loved New Zealand and probably moved there with the love of exploring the outdoors. There are some people who are not thought about in this tragedy, more from a mental health standpoint. Radio New Zealand reported that shortly before 2pm, emergency call handler Spencer Dennehy took a call from a distraught woman. Her husband and toddler were in the Linwood Mosque and she was desperate to get to them. Struggling to stay calm herself, Spencer pled with the woman on the phone to stay away from the mosque. Later, she had a sleepless night wondering what had happened to that family. The police were now fully aware of what was going on. It was about 2.03pm on the 15th of March when two rural community cops from Lincoln were driving along Brougham Street when they spotted Tarrant's silver Subaru driving erratically with its hazard lights on. The two men, who were never identified for legal reasons, had known each other for years and even played rugby with each other. The registration number matched the one that had been identified in the shooter's Facebook Live video, spotted when the gunman had been seen grabbing a rifle from his boot. At this time, they had no idea how many gunmen there were, but were in the area because they believed that there was a good chance the offender or offenders would have left the two mosques. 
they gave chase and they managed to ram the car into the side of the road. Ignoring the bombs which were in the back seat, they dragged Tarrant through the passenger side of the car and onto the pavement. Footage shot by a member of the public shows the arrest. Both police officers dressed in standard police uniform approached the driver's side door one by one, aiming their pistols at the man inside before dragging him onto the ground and handcuffing him. The bonnet of the police car was under the Subaru's right axle. Upon his initial interview with the police, Tarrant informed them that there were eight shooters out there and that he was only one. In his interview, he told them that he had gone to both mosques with the intention of killing as many people as he could. Tarrant admitted that he regretted not having the opportunity to burn the mosques down by using the incendiary devices that the police had discovered in the back of his Subaru and that he had not been able to shoot more people. The police had also learnt that when he was stopped he was en route to the mosque in Ashburton just over an hour away. He confirmed to the police the ideological motivation behind his self-confessed terror attacks showing pride in his manifesto. As a result of the additional shooter information being obtained, schools, hospitals, places of worship and government buildings went into lockdown. There was an added concern that a climate school strike was taking place in Cathedral Square. At 2.30pm, as the magnitude of what had happened started to become clear, Jacinda Arden announced she had cancelled all of her events for the day and would be heading to Wellington for a briefing as soon as possible. At 4.10pm, the New Zealand Prime Minister gave the following press briefing. Let's listen in. It is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Clearly what has happened here is an extraordinary and unprecedented act of violence. Many of those who will have been directly affected by this shooting uh, may be migrants to New Zealand. They may even be refugees here. They have chosen to make New Zealand their home and it is their home. They are us. The person who has perpetuated this violence against us is not. They have no place in New Zealand. There is no place in New Zealand for such acts of extreme and unprecedented violence, which is, it is clear this act was. For now, my thoughts, and I'm sure the thoughts of all New Zealanders, are with those who have been affected and also with their families. My thoughts also to those in Christchurch who are still dealing with an unfolding situation. The advice from police continues to be that um, people remain indoors. I acknowledge uh, that that may mean that some families are separated, but please continue uh, to listen out for uh, information as it comes to light that's been directly provided by the New Zealand police with further information. But as I say, they please remain in lockdown. We are potentially still dealing with an evolving situation, again, as I say, across multiple sites. 
Please be assured, though, the police um, are actively managing the situation. Uh, Christchurch Hospital is dedicated uh, to treating those who are arriving at the hospital um, as we speak uh, as well. One part of this story, which has not been reported widely, was that the Bangladesh International Test Cricket Team were 50 yards away from the Al Noor Mosque when the shooting started, according to their team manager. Khalid Mashoud said, if we were there five minutes earlier, it would have been worse. Players were crying in the bus. They all were mentally affected, he told BBC's Bengali service. The team arrived at the mosque on a bus following a news conference at the Hagley Oval as they had been due to take on New Zealand in a test match the following day. It is understood that the news conference overran, leading to the delay in their arrival at the mosque. There were 17 members on the bus. As a manager, I had the responsibility to return to the hotel with the boys. It was really hard. We felt like we were in a movie. Some of the cricketers had described their ordeal on social media. Entire team got saved from active shooters, tweeted batsman Tamim Iqbal. Wicketkeeper batsman Mushfakir Rahim tweeted that the team was extremely lucky and he never wants to see those things happen again. Mohammed Issam, the Bangladesh correspondent for ESPN, told the BBC that he was with the players at the time of the shooting. I saw them get out of the parking lot. Within five minutes, one of the players called me for help. He said, save us, we are in big trouble, someone is shooting. I didn't take him seriously at first, but then his voice was cracking up and I just ran for it. I tried to run all the way and I got a lift from someone and I reached the incident. I tried to charge towards the team bus, which I saw from about a 100 yards. I thought, just go near to what was happening. There was live shooting going on at the time. There was fire. I saw one dead body and one person running towards me, and he had a bloodied shoulder. By the time I got close to the park, the players had disembarked from the bus. They were running towards me and just telling me to get out of there. We ran through the park and headed back to the ground for safely, and we were there for about an hour. He added, The players were breaking down. They had seen too much in the 15 minutes they were held up in the bus. There was no security because it's such a peaceful country. The players heard shots being fired. They saw people tumbling out of the gates and ducked under the bus. As a mark of respect, as with a lot of sporting events that weekend, the match was cancelled. At first... The victims of the attacks went to their graves in ones and twos, some being repatriated, but most wanted to be buried in their adopted country. In the Islamic faith, 
burial is usually within 24 hours of her death to protect the living from any sanitary issues. This is of course except in the case of if a person is killed when foul play is suspected. In those cases, it's important to determine the cause of death before burial, but then burial to take place as soon as possible. Cremation of the body is strictly forbidden in Islam. From Wednesday the 20th of March onwards, however, bodies were slowly released from the coroner to relatives eager to say their final goodbyes to their loved ones. But on Friday the 22nd of March, one week after the horrific acts, a virtual mosque had been set up in Hagley Park, attended by hundreds, including the Prime Minister herself. At 1.32pm, Shortly after the Muslim call to prayer sounded across New Zealand, two minutes of silence fell over the majority of the country. Across the other side of the city, the victims were being laid to rest in a mass burial at Christchurch's New Park Cemetery. We have never had in the history of New Zealand such an incident A speaker told an estimated 5,000 mourners, the equivalent of a tenth of the country's total Muslim population, gathered in the late afternoon autumn sunshine. We did not expect this, but it is not we who decide. It is God, and behind every decision of God there is wisdom, the speaker said. Inside the New Park Cemetery, the possession of the dead was relentless. Community leaders overseeing the proceedings announced the names of the victims in batches, allowing the family members to collect the bodies from a temporary marquee and carry them to a sprawling burial site on the other side of the cemetery. Mourners who were eager to pay their last respects gathered alongside a makeshift thoroughfare, lining the family's route. Some cried, Alu Akbar, or God is the greatest, as they walked. Others wept in silence. Among the names called out in one clutch was three-year-old Makar Ibrahim, the youngest victim of the attack. Amid the movement of bodies, Wisps of dust were whipped up by those filling the graves with soil from nearby mounds, which themselves towered above the row upon row of gaping holes in the earth. Above them still sat the loudspeakers, put in place across the burial site, which continued to reverberate with name after name of the dead. A recollection of events which was posted on the Al Jazeera website. The words of the author, David Child, were so strong and poignant. Shortly after the final bodies were collected, at about 6pm, a small crowd of men gathered in one corner of the cemetery to pray as the sun slid down in the east. One sported a New Zealand flag, draped over his shoulders and the upper reaches of his throbe. Alongside him, 
his fellow worshippers knelt just metres away from a pile of discarded empty caskets, which had minutes earlier housed so many of their friends and relatives on their final journey to the grave. Each unique, and yet the same. Brenton Tarrant appeared in the Christchurch District Court with Judge Paul Keller presiding on Saturday the 16th of March 2019 and he was charged with 51 counts of murder, 40 of attempted murder and one terrorism charge. He was remanded without a plea until his next appearance in Christchurch's High Court on April the 5th. Handcuffed, shoeless and wearing a white prison suit, Tarrant did not speak. His court-appointed lawyer made no application for bail or name suppression. During the short hearing, Tarrant showed no remorse and he flashed an upside-down OK signal, a symbol used by white power groups across the globe. Al Jazeera's Andrew Thomas reported from the court and he said that Tarrant locked eyes intensely with journalists in the courtroom. He came into court, he didn't say anything at all. He stood there looking directly at the media in the courtroom and he was smirking throughout his appearance, Thomas reported. On the 5th of April 2019, Brenton Tarrant appeared in the courtroom packed with relatives of some of the victims via video link from prison. Judge Cameron Mander ordered that two assessments would be carried out to determine the state of Tarrant's mental health. Tarrant listened intently during the short court hearing and he made no comments. He was able to see the judge and lawyers and hear the proceedings but the camera was turned away from the public gallery. The judge remanded him in custody and his next court appearance was scheduled for the 14th of June. On the 14th of June 2019, he appeared via video link from prison. Tarrant sat silently as his lawyer read out his plea. As lawyer Shane Tate read out his client's not guilty pleas, a number of those present gasped and became tearful. High Court Justice Manda said that the trial had been set for the 4th of May 2020 and that Tarrant would be remanded in custody until his next case review hearing on the 16th of August. Judge Manda said in a statement, No issue arises regarding the defendant's fitness to plead, to instruct counsel and to stand trial. A fitness hearing is not required. Tarrant was being kept in isolation at the Auckland prison, considered New Zealand's toughest prison. Tarrant attempted to drag out proceedings by trying to move the hearing to Auckland in October of 2019, but withdrew this at the last minute. On March the 26th, 2020, Brenton Tarrant surprised everyone. He admitted to being the gunman 
in the Christchurch terror attacks. This acknowledgement meant countless victims would be spared the trauma of having to sit through a trial. Tarrant pleaded guilty to all charges. That was the 51 charges of murder, 40 charges of attempted murder and the one charge of committing a terrorist act. So what do we know about this truly evil human being? A combination of the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian and the New Zealand Herald gave an in-depth look at his life and looked at possible reasons that he turned out the way he did. Brenton Tarrant was born on the 27th of October 1990. He came from Grafton in Australia, about an hour's drive from the coastal Coffs Harbour in New South Wales. Grafton is an unassuming town of 20,000 citizens. Tarrant was the second and last child of Rodney and Sharon Tarrant. Rodney worked the rubbish trucks and Sharon was a schoolteacher. He was such a dear little boy, Sharon's mum, Marie Fitzgerald, told the Sydney Morning Herald in the aftermath. She recalled the rascal who had always run away from her when she looked after him and his elder sister, Lauren. He was a boy whose parents separated, partly under the strain of Rodney's fitness compulsion which led him to take part in marathons and triathlons in Australia and abroad. It was an expensive compulsion. The family was never wealthy and the drain on finances put pressure on the marriage. The split came just before Tarrant's teenage years. One of Rodney Tarrant's first acts following the end of his marriage was to take his children on holiday to New Zealand. That fitness drive that contributed to the end of his marriage wasn't something seen in the younger Tarrant. Marie Fitzgerald told the Sydney Morning Herald of how sport passed her grandson by, even as his sister excelled. Schoolmates from Grafton High recalled him as a mischief-maker, a prankster, perhaps a misfit, someone without close friends. One former classmate recalled Tarrant putting shredded newspaper on top of an air conditioner, which sprayed everywhere when the teacher turned it on. Former schoolmate and plumber Mitchell Firth told the Sydney Morning Herald that Tarrant was no mental slouch. If there was a topic someone was talking about, he would know a hell of a lot more about it than anyone else. A lot of people would focus on one side of the topic while he would do his research all the way around. As a teenager, he was a gamer. He was into first-person, team-based shooters. The Australian reported he spent thousands of hours gaming online. As he moved through his teenage years, Tarrant did find cause to exercise when recovering from a leg injury. It put him on the same obsessive path that captured his father and he began working out 
at the town's Big River Gym before and after finishing high school. He became such a fixture that in 2009 he became an instructor. Gym manager Tracy Gray told Australian media that Tarrant had gone through school being bullied for being overweight and trained until he was a stocky, fit young man. The unravelling, as his mother Sharon called it, didn't really come until Tarrant's father died of cancer in the following year, 2010. Rodney and Brenton Tarrant shared a home together at the time. Tarrant was 20, his dad was just 49 when he died. I tend to think living with his father and watching him die must have been such a terrible thing, said Marie Fitzgerald. Rodney Tarrant's years of chasing a rubbish truck led to an early grave. The rubbish skips of asbestos that he emptied on a regular basis were later blamed for the lung cancer that painfully and slowly took his life. Sharon told the New Zealand Herald her son was profoundly affected. He suffered from anxiety and chronic depression after his father's death. Tarrant sought comfort in physical solitude, finding social contact over the internet. He would spend hours, days alone playing games and engaging with people online. Sharon had worried at the time, concerned he was slipping into a place where bigotry and hatred ruled. It was the space he slipped into when he was grieving, Sharon said. All of those people on the dark web encourage each other. It's so frightening. But what they don't realise is that when you're chronically depressed, you're susceptible to believing everything. The loss of his father brought Tarrant an inheritance. The Weekend Australian reported that he and his sister inherited about 300,000 Australian dollars each. When it came the money gradually opened a door to the world for Tarrant. He went in small steps, leaving Grafton for New Zealand to see friends the Australian had said he had met online. From there, it was back to Australia and a trip in a van through northern Australia where he was exposed to the despair and poverty of Aboriginal communities. That was 2013 and 2014. And then onwards to Southeast Asia, China, India, Africa and South America. By one estimate, the Australian reported he had visited almost 80 countries. It was an odyssey that became a pilgrimage as Tarrant went from visiting those countries familiar to a young Australian traveller to focus on those with links to themes pushed by right-wing ideologies. By 2016, Tarrant was on a road in Europe. With what came later in Christchurch, his travels took on a sense of foreboding as he toured sites that were rallying cries for the far-right extremists who believed Western civilization was under threat. 
both 2016 and through 2017, Tarrant was travelling Eastern Europe. There were trips to Greece, Turkey, Israel, Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro and Bosnia-Herzegovina. He would visit castles where victories against invading Muslim forces were magnets for the far right. He would walk mountain trails that once carried mighty armies. In Serbia, he visited the museum of the general Marko Milianov Popovic, who fought against the Ottomans. Popovic's name would later be seen among the words written on the weapons Tarrant used in Christchurch. Tarrant travelled as if money in his bank account would never run out. He was in Europe in the spring of 2017, travelling through France. Another name he would paint on his firearms was that of Charles Martel, a French leader of about 700 AD, now praised by white nationalists. As he journeyed through the continent, there were events he would later claim as triggers that compelled him to plan an attack that he eventually carried out in Christchurch. In April 2017, five people were killed in a vehicle-based attack in Stockholm by an unsuccessful Uzbekistani asylum seeker. Among the victims was Eba Akerlund, who was just 11 years old. Her name also appeared on Tarrant's weapons, an act which her family subsequently condemned. The election of Emmanuel Macron as President of France in May was another trigger claimed by Tarrant. He fumed over the political leader's opinions and policies. Both Eber's death and Macron's election fed anger in the online white nationalist community in which Tarrant was immersed. When Tarrant moved to New Zealand in August 2017, he later said he did so to plan and train for the attack he had already conceived. He moved to Dunedin and rented a house in a quiet street and set about planning a massacre. New Zealand wasn't the target he initially intended to attack, but it became the country that he settled on. In Dunedin, those on Somerville Street rarely saw their new Australian neighbour. Others on the street would leave for work, arrive home at night, chat or simply wave at each other as they passed. It was a casual courtesy in which Tarrant had no part. He had isolated himself from life for years, withdrawing from society as he immersed himself in an online world that drew him further towards extremes. He had no job. He did little other than train at a local gym and shoot at a gun club in the south of the city. Even there, he sought little contact with others. In all, he spent more than a year in Dunedin East. He bought guns and ammunition, and he planned the massacre. His mother visited Dunedin 
and pleaded for him to come home three months before her son acted. She was worried this wasn't the son that she had raised, living in a sparsely furnished house. His accommodation was so stark it may well have been a cell, she said. He hadn't even put sheets on his bed. In the hours before the attack, Tarrant sent her a message. There would be the most terrible things said about him, he predicted, because of what he had chosen to do. It's on me, he told her, and not how you raised me. Sharon Tarrant might well have physically brought her son into the world, but it wasn't her who made the killer of March the 15th. By then, he was a long way from the red-haired boy with curls framing his face, who sat on the sidelines while his sister played hockey. He was no longer the school prankster or the obsessive free weight lifter who wouldn't wash. As Tarrant had already pleaded guilty, all that was left was the sentencing hearing. And, for a first for this podcast, the first court hearing which was delayed due to COVID-19. The sentencing took place at Christchurch High Court with Justice Cameron Manda presiding. The hearing was scheduled for four days and began on the 24th of August 2020. COVID-19 restrictions meant that the main courtroom was relatively empty. But hundreds watched the proceedings on video feeds from other courtrooms across the city to allow for social distancing measures. Tarrant had decided to fire his legal team and represent himself for the sentencing phase and was led into the courtroom every morning and sat behind clear perspects while 60 victim impact statements were given. At the sentencing hearing, the long and extensive planning that Tarrant had participated in was fully revealed. In addition to acquiring high-powered firearms, he had purchased in excess of 7,000 rounds of ammunition and bought equipment solely for the purpose of carrying out the attacks. He had modified military-style semi-automatic rifles in order to improve their rate of fire and practised their use. Crown Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes told the court that Tarrant had begun formulating a plan years earlier and his goal was to inflict as many fatalities as possible. He obtained all of the information that he could about all of the mosques throughout New Zealand, not just Christchurch. This included plans and photographs of their interiors, the details of Muslim holy days and the times when the most people would be gathering for prayer. In January 2019, he had travelled to Christchurch to carry out a reconnaissance of the Al-Nur Mosque. Tarrant had purchased a drone with a camera and flew that drone over the building, recording an aerial view of the mosque's grounds, including the points of entry and the ways out of the building. 
After settling on the targeted mosques, Tarrant analysed their layouts and the likely exit routes worshippers would have taken to escape. The sole purpose of this preparation was to kill as many people at each mosque as efficiently and as systematically as he could. This was the reveal about how meticulous and callous this attack really was. Brenton Tarrant waived his right to speak at his sentencing hearing. Wasim Sati al-Dragma was with his daughter at the Al-Nur Mosque when they were shot at several times. Dragma was defiant as he approached the stand, addressing Tarrant directly. Good afternoon, everyone, except you, he said. Thankfully, we have survived because you don't know how to use a gun except from zero point. Tarrant himself burst out laughing and then caught himself and covered his mouth. Dragmir's words quickly became serious, saying Tarrant had failed to destroy their community. You think that your actions have destroyed our community and shaken our faith, but you have not succeeded. You have made us come together with more determination and strength, he said. So you have failed completely. So you have failed completely. I'm going to play you some of the most powerful witness impact statements from the trial. Fortunately for me, research in this case, because the majority of the sentencing was live-streamed, a lot of the statements are on YouTube. If you would like to hear some of the other statements, you can easily find them. First, you will hear from Hamima Toiran, who was the wife of Zekria Toiran, who was killed in the Al-Nur mosque attack. Prepare yourselves, as you might need a hanky. God says in the Quran, whoever kills one innocent soul, it is as if he has killed the entire mankind. And you killed 51. They left behind 34 spouses, 92 children, and more than 100 siblings who now have to endure the life sentence of being without their loved ones. You admitted guilt to 40 counts of attempted murder. Defenseless men, women, children, they were praying peacefully in their mosques. Now for Sarah Qasim, who was the daughter of Abdul Fattah Qasim. All a daughter ever wants is her dad. I want to go on more road trips with him. I want to smell his garden sauce cooking. His cologne. Let it be no, these tears are not for you. 
finally for the families of the victim. Jana Isat, who was the mother of 16-year-old Hussein al-Umrani. The worst part of this tragedy was when we received Hussein's body this, on the sixth day, 21st of March, which is my birthday. Not only my birthday, but it is also Mother's Day in the Middle East where I grew up. I was desperately waiting to see Hussein's body to give him the last hug and kiss. I was shocked to see the gruesome extent of number of, of this murder and to see his skull wide open with his brain still bleeding. In addition to the multiple number of bullets and opening all over his body, this is a very painful image that turned my upcoming birthdays and mother days to a nightmare forever. He used to give me flower for my birthday, but instead I got his body. But ladies and gentlemen, am I hell gonna end on one that's sad? Brenton Tarrant was not successful in killing everyone he aimed at. Some were defiant. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the hero of the Linwood Mosque, Abdul Aziz Wahabazada, the man who, if he had not taken such heroic steps, there would have been a lot more casualties. He had some very choice words for Brenton Tarrant. I was screaming, yelling, swearing, where are you? Come in front. Then I saw a car was parked in our driveway, which is unusual. And I ran toward that car. Then I saw this, that coward come out with bulletproof waist, army clothes, element with a camera in the front. My two sons was looking from the side of the mosque, he, that coward was keep shooting at me and said, Daddy, please come inside. I told him, you go inside, I will be all right. When I come there, then I saw another body and a rifle was next to it. I picked the rifle, lucky they didn't have the bullets. It will be a different story. We wouldn't lose that much people. The gun I had in my hands, I ran from behind the mosque that coward probably saw me, or he must be run out of bullets. He dropped his gun, he ran towards his car. He's sitting on his car, but because we had a distance. I threw the gun on his side window, and I smashed his side window. When I smashed his side window, I could feel on his eyes for his own life. He should thanks God on that day, I didn't catch him. That time will be a different story. This government will save a lot of money, and this brother insists that the ones they lost their loved one, they wouldn't go through that. You should thanks Allah for I didn't catch you on that day. You never forget these two highs you run from. Before you go, I've seen the video, and I want to acknowledge your courage. Thank you, Your Honor.
Thank you very much. At the end of an emotional three days for most involved, and I say most as the man standing trial barely flinched throughout, High Court Judge Cameron Manda passed sentence. Your act of terrorism resulted in the murder of 51 people and the serious wounding of 40 more. You committed mass murder. You slaughtered unarmed and defenceless people. You maimed, wounded and crippled many others. Your victims include the young and the old, men, women and children. Your actions were inhuman. You deliberately killed a three-year-old infant by shooting him in the head as he clung to the leg of his father. The terror you inflicted in the last few minutes of that small child's life is but one instance of the pitiless cruelty that you exhibited throughout. There are countless more examples. You showed no mercy. Other children were present. A two-year-old boy was shot and a four-year-old girl was another of your victims, as were the elderly. Wounded people who were incapacitated and unable to escape were dispatched by you in cold blood, often at point-blank range. You shot people in the back and ignored the pleas of the wounded to be spared. You advanced on them, stood over them and viciously took their lives. Extremist beliefs and ideologies that seek to promote violence and hate are anathema to the values of acceptance, tolerance and mutual respect upon which our inclusive society is based and which this country strives to maintain. Your crimes were met by an unprecedented public outpouring of love and support for the people you targeted and the wider Muslim community. Your design was to divide, but the public's response was to stand with the people of their community, with their fellow New Zealanders, to demonstrate their unqualified repudiation of your hateful agenda. You failed. To my observation, however, you remain entirely self-absorbed. You have offered no apology or public acknowledgement of the harm you have caused. There is little to indicate that your pleas denote any deeply held sense of remorse for your victims. You are particularly distressed at having caused such terrible grief. Having given the matter much consideration, I am satisfied that no minimum period of imprisonment would be sufficient to satisfy the legitimate need to hold you to account for the harm you have done to the community. Nor do I consider that any minimum term of imprisonment would be sufficient to denounce your crimes. The nature and circumstances for your offending, unprecedented in this country, are such that I consider the requirement that you serve your sentences of life imprisonment for murder without parole as a necessary sanction that provides a proportionate response. On each of the 51 charges of murder, charges 1 to 51, you were sentenced to life imprisonment. I order that you serve the sentences without parole. 
on each of the 40 charges of attempted murder, charges 52 to 91. He was sentenced to concurrent terms of 12 years in prison. On the charge of committing a terrorist act, charge 92, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Stand down. Tarrant did not react to the sentence. Gamal Fowder, the imam of the Al-Nur Mosque, said that no punishment would bring back our loved ones, but he was proud of New Zealand's response to extremism. We respect our justice system, and in New Zealand's Muslim community, and non-Muslim as well, we stood together against hate. And with it, our own model for the world. Extremists are all the same, whether they use religions, nationalism or any other ideology. He continued, All extremists, they represent hate. But we are here today. We represent love, compassion, Muslim and non-Muslim people of faith and of no faith. That is us, New Zealanders, and we are very proud of that. We are Muslims in New Zealand and will continue to serve this country and no punishment again is going to bring our loved ones back. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said that she was relieved that the person would never see the light of day. The trauma of March the 15th is not easily healed, but today, I hope, is the last where we have to cause to hear or utter the name of the terrorist behind it. He deserved a lifetime of complete and utter silence, she said. The Prime Minister praised the survivors and the families of the victims who gave emotionally charged statements in the court throughout the sentencing hearing calling for Tarrant to be sentenced to life without parole. Nothing will take the pain away, but I hope you felt the arms of New Zealand around you through this whole process, and I hope you continue to feel that through all the days that follow. Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia, also welcomed Tarrant's sentencing. Justice was today delivered to the terrorist and the murderer for his cowardly and horrific crimes in Christchurch. It is right that we will never see or hear from him again. So that's it for this case. It is still difficult for me to fathom that all of this happened in the space of half an hour, from Tarrant arriving in Christchurch to being arrested having changed the lives of countless people. I hope that you've enjoyed this change of approach, even if the subject matter was slightly different. Please let me know what you think, because if I think it's working and I end up losing all my normal listeners, it's not really worth it. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, 
True Crime Fix discussion. Also a reminder, the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast i also have an instagram account so search true crime fix also if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show please contact me at true crime fix podcast at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care everyone.